Father, I thank you for this day. 
Father, it's, it's rainy and it's cloudy and it's kind of a dreary day, but Father, it is a day that you have made, and so we're going to rejoice in it today. We're going to rejoice in the fact that you have blessed us, Father, immensely, above, above and beyond anything that we could possibly ask or think. Father, we sit here today with the capacity to think, to function, to worship. Father, you have blessed us in ways that far surpass um, many of our brothers and sisters around the world. We meet in a beautiful sanctuary today, Father, surrounded by beautiful music. And, and Lord, you have, you have given us the reminder that, that even on this Lord's Day, Father, that, that we gather together to worship you. Thank you for all of the things that you have done, both are and, Father, that you are doing among your people. Father, I thank you for the ministry of First Baptist Church here in Union City, Tennessee. I thank you for the faithfulness of its people. I thank you for the work that you have committed to us. And so, Father, I just ask that you bless the hands and the feet of your obedient servants, that you take what we have in faith, that you multiply it. Father, that you create disciples, that you sanctify your saints, and, Father, that, 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 that through the work of your people here at this church, that you are glorified by all that we say and do. Father, it's a privilege and it's a pleasure this morning to, to come into the sanctuary with one another and to offer our gift of worship. So, Father, may now you receive it. May it be pleasing in your sight. May you be glorified by all that we say and do. Father, may our hearts be drawn closer to you through this worship. Father, I thank you for the ministry of reconciliation of the gospel that you've given to us. And Father, may this, may this service this morning serve to do just that. May it advance the gospel, whether that's on TV or on Facebook or, or even in the hearts and the minds of the people that are here so that they will go and make disciples. Father, I thank you for all these things. And as, as, as we commit this hour to you, we thank you. For the saints that you have seen through us, Brother Jim Towater, as you have seen through surgery just this past weekend. And Father, we thank you for the mercy that you've given to him through a successful surgery. Uh, Lord, for others that are in ill, and Father, those that are, that are hurting and, and in bondage, Father, we pray that you bless them, anoint them. And, uh, and Father, bring them back, back into, your, into your will and purpose. And Father, we pray all these things, and we ask this now in Jesus' name. And amen. Oftentimes we remember hymns. Maybe it's the tune that we like or something about the song that catches our attention. Uh, this hymn, I Stand Amazed in the Presence, has always grabbed my attention because of the, of the text. And I hope you'll take the time uh, to focus on the text as we sing all four verses. Because it takes us not only where Jesus um, talks about how he could love us as a sinner. That we're, we are condemned, we're unclean, and he loves us. Then it takes us to the garden. Uh, and then to the cross, and then when we will see him in eternity. What a beautiful picture he paints in this picture. Let's stand together and sing, I Stand Amazed in the Presence. This is our offertory hymn.
remain standing for our offertory prayer. Bobby Moore is going to come and lead us as we pray, and then we are in for a treat as one of our youth will lead us in worship at the piano offertory. Tyler Lounsdale will lead us in playing the power of the cross. Bobby? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you again for allowing us to have another day to come in your house to, to praise you, Lord. Lord, we just ask the healing hands on all those that are sick and need your healing hands. We thank you for all the family of First Baptist. We just ask that Brother Ben deliver some message that we may go out of here with a better understanding of your word. As we come to this time for tithes and offerings, just let us give from our hearts and let these tithes and offerings be used to glorify your precious name. These things we ask in your name. Amen.
Well, he gets it from his old man. Oh, wow. I love hearing my kids play. I'm, I, won't, I won't lie. Whether it's in the house or in the church and sanctuary, whether it's a guitar or a piano, it doesn't matter. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's just truly thankful that the Lord has, has given them the gift of music and, um, and that they're willing to share it with, uh, with others to his glory. Thankful for that. Um, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ezekiel chapter 3. I want to, uh, to, to speak this morning from verses 16, and I want to read through verses 21. I guess it's actually verse 21, because there's no such thing as verses 21. So, verses 16 through 21 of the third chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Now, this morning's message is titled, My Brother's Keeper. The concept, or the, the idea behind all of this, is that we as Christians are accountable to one another and that we should submit to one another in Christian love. We do have a responsibility to watch out or have, if I can use a modern lingo, we should have each other's backs. We as Christians, we have that obligation. We have that, that fellowship of, in Christ to do so. Now, I'm going to use Ezekiel's um, calling as a watchman of Israel to kind of analogize. Um, and so I, I'm not going to take uh, Ezekiel out of context, but I do want to use him this morning to speak to another biblical and New Testament concept, which is my brother's keeper. So let's stand together and let's read God's word. Ezekiel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Bible says this, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood... I will require at your hand. Yet, if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you did not give him warning, he shall die in sin, and his righteousness, which he has, which his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Let's stop here and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word this morning as it has now been read in the reading of your people. Father, may it be blessed. And we pray this in Christ's name. And amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Now, I, I want to preface the entirety of this with, with, with this observation. In our modern days, in the modern times in which we live, Christianity has succumbed to the cultural pressure of staying out of other people's business. Okay? Um, we have a, a new cultural norm uh, that has produced phrases like, Who am I to judge? That's none of my business. What they do is their business, and who am I to say anything? And that's what the culture has 
produce. Now, understand that this is not a Christian principle. It's a pagan one. It's pagan because what pagans do in the dark, they like, stay, they like to stay there. They don't like the light shining on their sins so that they are exposed to the world. Thus, they have crafted a narrative that permits them to have a buffer. A buffer from any accusation or any such treatment. In fact, as our world grows increasingly pagan, we now see the same legislative bodies that rule our lands drafting laws that would punish individuals, punish them for calling certain vices or lifestyles sin. Okay? We live in a world like that now. We're surrounded by other nations that have done the same thing. They call it hate speech. Say anything contrary to one's lifestyle that you are full of hate speech. It's now considered hate speech to call or at least to appeal a righteous call to a sinner to repent. Christians have bought into this and have now invited the wolves into the sheepfold and the wolves have now begun to pray. Now the Bible never says anything concerning uh, at least our silence uh, toward our brothers and sisters. The Bible never says as brothers and sisters, that we are to mind our own business, that we, are to, that we are not to meddle in the affairs of others. In fact, it says that just the opposite. I read to you Galatians 6.1 while ago. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We have Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he won't hear you, take one or two more. If he still refuses, take him before the church. Romans 15, verse 1 says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And we can't, in reading these, ignore James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we have a precedent a New Testament biblical precedent that concerning the brothers and sisters of Christ, we have a duty to faithfully plead with them when they are in sin. In fact, we have such an obligation that we are all we have left really in our world to bear one another's burdens. It seems like the pagan world has the never-ending assault or a barrage of accusation and criticism leveled against the church. We have our own fair amount taking place in the church as well, right, which ought not be. As Paul said to the Galatians, restore one another in the spirit of gentleness, in mercy, in grace, with the goal of restoration. Now, in biblical days, God assigned... Ezekiel, this position of a watchman. In biblical days, this watchman was responsible for keeping a keen eye out for any approaching or attacking enemy. They were to sound the alarm 
if they were to see any of the enemy approaching. In our New Testament days, we're encouraged to do the same thing. Y'all, listen, the enemy is advancing. The enemy is consuming ground. One by one, he is picking off the, the, the faithful, the saints of God. And we are at some point one another, or at least accountable to one another, to sound the alarm, especially in the assembly of God's people. I'll just use myself first and foremost as an example. If I am in sin, you have an obligation to come to me and tell me, to restore me back unto righteousness. Now, I know, I know that flies all in the face of the cancel culture. I know that we have this mentality now, and, and even our own convention is now f- falling into the, into the traps and the tricks of this cancel culture, this, this nature of unforgiveness. The Bible says that if you are in sin, restoration is possible that you should seek it, that you should find it, that you should accomplishment to the glory of God. Because I've seen people do very bad things, but were restored unto righteousness and to the glory of God, they fulfilled their obligations. There's forgiveness. There's second chances. There's all these different kinds of things in, in, the, in the body of Christ. So we must, at some point, Return back to this biblical principle. Now, in your bulletin, you'll see the outline. I want, to, I want to kind of breeze through the very first part of it with Ezekiel. Ezekiel, as the first point makes, was Israel's watchman. God appointed him that. God said, look, Israel, Ezekiel, you are a watchman. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. You are a prophet for me. You will speak for me. You will tell the people what they need to hear. Now, with a prophet title... This came a little bit of this yin and yang. There was some good and some bad, if you will, to being a prophet of God. Ezekiel had the awesome responsibility of being trusted by God to speak on behalf of God. He had the awesome privilege of serving the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Ezekiel was challenged in many ways unlike probably anything we've ever known, to communicate a message of judgment and woe. He had to do so unapologetically. He had to do so without hesitation and with boldness and with grace. Because one of the burdens that came with speaking on behalf of God is that oftentimes the message was quickly and vehemently and passionately rejected. Many of the other prophets of God were killed. Jeremiah, bless his heart, of, 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 if you can use an example, endured mockery. He endured imprisonment, kidnapping, death threats, and was even thrown into a well. All because of the message that he was given by God to give to Jerusalem. They hated him and despised him so much that they tried to destroy him. Now, no prophet was ever rejected as much as Christ. The word of God in flesh endured humility, ultimately killed, gave up his life, if you will. Let me rephrase that for the message of salvation that he brought to the world. He brought a message of peace. He brought a message of reconciliation. He brought a, rec- a, a, a message of redemption, and they, they, they wanted him dead for it. So Christian, hear me. This morning, the message that we bear, it's not always going to be accepted. 
It's not always going to be an easy task to communicate on behalf of God. But what a privilege it is. What an honor it is to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Our job as New Testament watchmen, if you will, is not to be liked. It's not to be accepted by the world. It's not to make the message more inclusive. I know this is where we're kind of teetering on the verge of, 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 of absolute, what's the word? Now I won't call it mutiny. But we are dangerously close right now to taking God's word and altering it and modifying it for it to be inclusive to the world. That if we just somehow make it more palatable and, and more hearable and easier to listen to, that somehow people will receive it better. That's not our role. Our jobs as watchmen is simply to take the words of God and teach them to others. That means where God has spoken, we must speak. And that also means where God is silent, we must hold our tongues. It is not our place to give counsel concerning the things of God that he has not spoken about. There's a dual nature to that. Speak where God has spoken and be silent where he has not. This is the role of a prophet of God. Now, what were the two things that he was supposed to do? According to the scriptures this morning, the first thing is that he was responsible for warning the wicked. That makes sense. I mean, as a prophet of God, his message was one of judgment and woe. He was out there warning the wicked. Of what? Of impending doom. Of impending judgment. Israel was practicing things that were detestable to God. And it was Ezekiel's job to speak out against that. Sinfulness among the people of the day were just about as dangerous as the invading army that was coming from the north. In fact, God saw these warnings of, of, of sinfulness among his people more harmful than the actual army that was invading them from Assyria. These warnings that Ezekiel gave, though, were not messages of hate, as our world would like to ascribe them to. A message of judgment, of, of impending judgment, a message of warning is not a message of hate. It's a distinction that we should make this morning as believers that when we preach the gospel with gentleness, with grace, and with mercy, we're warning the wicked to, to turn from their sin lest they perish in them. And more importantly, that they would turn to a loving God of salvation and forgiveness. He was to warn the wicked. He was also to warn the righteous sinner. Okay, now I want to make that distinction. He's warning the righteous who have turned from their righteousness and are now in sin. We would say backslidden. I hate that word, but it's, it's one we're familiar with. An individual who has known the grace of God, who has uh, uh, confessed faith in Christ, but has turned from that. This was his second responsibility. Understand that God will not permit those who belong to him to continue to stay in sin. He will call out in conviction. He will call out to them to return back to him. There were those people in Israel at the time. And sometimes God uses 
other righteous people to accomplish this task. In fact, this is the New Testament design. This is why the fellowship of God's people is important. Because none of us are perfect. None of us have the ability to be that way. And so we each need one another to make sure that we are walking the straight and narrow. I mean, we're going to do things from time to time. We're going to get in the flesh. We're going to, we're going to get into our own minds, our own egos, our own sense of, 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 of selfishness or greed or whatever. And we're going to do things to one another that are sinful. And the beauty of that is that God has hardwired a mechanism into all of this so that we can restore one another back to fellowship with God and with one another. Right? This is the love of God. This is what's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13. This is what's spoken about when he says, love one another as I have loved you. And by the how you love one another, by how well you do that, everyone else will know that you are my disciples. Right? Now I wonder, I wonder personally in our world today how well we do that. How well is that executed in the body of Christ today? How well do we, do we go to one another in love and grace and mercy with the, with the intention of restoration? How well do we do that? Because that's the biblical model. Not, not this passive aggressiveness, not the backbiting, not the, not the seeking to destroy or to cancel or to anything like that. It's not that. That's not the biblical model. That's not what God has given to us. He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Thus, we should execute that well. Now, as watchmen, and this is where I take more of an analogous perspective. As watchmen of God, as Christians, we are to do the same thing. We are to warn the wicked of coming judgment. We are to warn the righteous sinner of the error of their way. We are to do those things. Now, we have three areas in which we warn individuals. The first one is the coming wrath of God. Christian, hear me. Your role as a watchman of the world, as a minister of the gospel, is to warn the wicked, the sinner, the pagan, that judgment is coming. And that if they don't turn from that sin, they will die in that wickedness. That's exactly what God said here. If you give him no warning, Ezekiel, don't speak to him the, the coming judgment to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. In fact, if you're living in wickedness, chances are your life is going to end a lot sooner than if you were living in righteousness. You can take statistics from the FBI, the, the, any, anywhere else, any kind of law enforcement, and you can see that those who practice lawlessness die in it. It's cause and effect. It's causality. It's, it's, in, it's, it's, it's inclined that if you engage in violence, those who die by the sword, or those who live by it, rather, will die by it. So it's our job as Christians to speak or to warn them of God's wrath. Now hear me. The Christian is in the perfect place to remind both the wicked and the righteous sinner about this coming wrath. Why? For it once existed in your life. Once upon a time in your life, you knew of the ever-present reality that judgment was coming on your life. You knew you were wrong. You knew you were living in sin. And you knew that if God were to come back right then, you would die and go to hell. You knew it. 
And you get to enjoy the benefit of the satisfaction of knowing that now the wrath of God is not on your head, thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. So why would it not be incumbent upon us to warn the wicked of the very same thing we escaped? That's the whole point. Paul, knowing the abounding grace of God in his own life, began his letter to the Romans with this. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, many modern people, many modern pastors, theologians, thinkers, whatever would take issue with Paul beginning such a letter like that, right? I mean, my goodness, Paul, you can get more flies with honey rather than warning about the impending coming judgment of God. Much of our modern preaching and preachers will implore you that it is unloving to indict a sinner of sin. And because we now live in an age of grace, that warning against the wrath of God will only drive people away from God. That it's love that appeals to people, draws them to the message of the cross. This, this mushy sentimentalism that, 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 that we should be using and employing and capturing for the, for, the, for, the, for the sake of the church house. Fill it up with people. And then somehow feel like that, that equates to righteousness. The problem with these modern pulpitarians is they're going to have to explain why then John the Baptist began the very first message in the New Testament, one of repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. For who warns you to escape the coming judgment of God? Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 36. He who does not believe on the Son of God will not see eternal life. But the wrath of God abides on him. This, listen. The only thing that the wicked needs to know is that the wrath of God is on their head. That if they don't turn from their wickedness, that God's wrath will be fully released on them when they die. These pulpitarians today, these modern preachers, will have to explain why the book of Revelation ends with the vision of the returning Christ. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will, tress, he will rather tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. That's what's coming to the wicked. And who are we? Far be it from us to withhold that message. Yes, God is love. Yes, he loves people. But this does not negate the fact that his wrath rests upon their sin. That eternal damnation awaits them if they reject so great a love. That punishment in the fires of hell is the reward for a life of iniquity. It is Christian 
to warn them of the coming judgment. The second thing we are to do as watchmen is to plead with individuals to turn from their sin. Listen to me. You know what sin does? It destroys. It kills. It robs. It takes everything from you. Small, little, inconsequential, big. There is no adjective that describes sin. Sin is sin. It's lawlessness. The message of the gospel is one of repentance. Christians, by preaching the gospel, seek reconciliation. They seek restoration. And they seek bringing sinners, sinners rather, into repentance. Because without the preaching of repentance, there is no remission of sin. And it does no good to tell people that despite their sin, hear me, that God loves them just the way they are. That is not true. I know we say that. Oh, God loves you just the way you are. If you are living in sin, God does not love you just the way you are. Okay? He does not. In fact, he hates the sin that is in your life. He hates the sin and he will judge it accordingly. And to fail to plead with someone to not turn away from their sin is like washing the mud off of a pig and then expecting it not to go back to the pig pen. We have an obligation to appeal to people to turn from their sin. Not a mushy sentimentalism, as I mentioned a minute ago, that only affirms for the sinner that God really isn't serious about sin. Because that's what it does. When we tell people God loves them just the way they are, then we're telling them that God's not really serious about their sin. We're telling them that it's okay to keep continuing and doing whatever it is that you're doing because God loves you anyway. All the while giving them false assurance as they head to hell. That's the, that's the serious nature of it. That's the consequence of what's being told today. God is not only concerned about our happiness, about our contentedness. God is not concerned about those things. It's sin that, is sep- that separates us from God. It's sin that affords the wrath of God on sinners. It's sin that nailed Christ to the cross. It's sin that God is going to deal with. And the message to the center, sinner is to repent. And then the third message that we as Christians, as watchmen, need to deliver is to restore individuals back to God. And I feel like sometimes in, in, our, in, our, in our exercising of faith, that sometimes we don't do that well. You know, it's, it's easy to wield the sword of righteousness and, and to cut people down with all kinds of, of accusation and, and, and all. But, but to restore them back to God is the purpose. Accusing someone of sin is not the goal of the gospel. It's to reconcile them back to God. That's the goal of the, of the, that's the, goal of the gospel. And once this message has been taken to heart, Christians need to plead to pe- plead with people. Turn from that sin. Get away from it. It kills you. It destroys you. And turn to God because he will make you whole. He will clean you up. He will deliver you unto righteousness because that's what God requires. One must be, re- be-, be reconciled to Christ in order to be declared righteous. One must abide on the vine of Christ to bear fruits of righteousness. 
One must walk in the Spirit of God to produce these fruits. Without the sinner, because this is true too, it's not good enough just to turn from sin. Any of us can do that. It is another thing to return to righteousness. That's what God desires. Yes, yes, turn from sin, yes, amen, praise the Lord, but turn to God. Because if you don't turn to God, then you're going to turn to everywhere else that's going to, that's going to give you some assurance that you're okay, that you're, not, that you're not going to be whole. Because without the sinner returning to Christ, wholeness cannot become a reality. And then lastly, I want to get to this last part, the, the consequences of being silent. And then I'm going to quit. Oh, I got plenty of time. <laughs> so, this is where the rubber meets the road for us. Accountability, responsibility, this idea that God requires Christians to be their brother's keeper. Look, there's some, there's, there's, basically, there's two serious consequences to silence. And this, is, this, and this is where this is where Christians get in trouble today. Because a lot of Christians, they say, you know what, I don't need this. I, I don't really, I, I really want to start something. I don't feel like, I don't like, I don't like confrontation. I don't want to do this. So, so I'm just going to I'm just, just going to keep, just going to keep my, my silence, hold my tongue. Right? Furthermore, many times people say, oh, I'm not going to touch that because I'm kind of guilty of it too. But the message of the watchman, the message for the Christian is that if the Christian refuses to be a watchman, God will hold them accountable. Okay? If you hold your silence and you refuse to be a watchman, God will still hold you accountable for that silence. God's not going to sit here and give us a great commission and and promise to be with us until the end of the age for us to say, I'm not interested. I think I'll just be quiet about all this. And he's going to say, okay, okay. It's not how it works. In fact, God told Ezekiel, look, if you tell them, or rather you don't tell them, if I give you a message of judgment and you hold your tongue, their blood is on your hands. Because you didn't say nothing. You knew it was coming, and you didn't say anything. And, and this, again, takes me back to this whole God loves you just the way you are nonsense. It's not true. Because all we're doing is we're giving people a false assurance. That God's not serious about their sin. Blood will be required. If you're of the faith, blood was already required. And it was atoned for by the blood of Christ, your sin. But if you are an unbeliever, if you are rejecting, if you are living in a life of rebellion against God, then God will require your blood at at your hand. You will be responsible. And you will be accountable to your sin. The reality to all of this is that God will hold the Christian accountable for their silence. I mean, my goodness, if we know the truth and we do not share it, everyone who perishes in our own capacities, everyone who perishes in eternal destruction will be committed to our account. And this is, this is my reality every time I enter this pulpit. 
that, that I give you the whole counsel of God's word. Look, I, I sit sometimes and I, and I listen to sermons online and, 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 and I hear these people say crazy stuff and, and preachers will say things and I'm like, that's not in the scriptures. Uh, and they'll say other things that are like complete manipulation to distortions or twistedness of scriptures. And they will stand, they stand in their own condemnation and will give account to God because they're giving the people heresy. That weighs heavy on me. And it is why I take this business very seriously. Because I believe the part in Scripture which says God will hold those who teach to a higher account. What comes out of my mouth and into your ears and into your hearts better be what God has already said. And if I say something contrary to what he has said, if I don't say something where he has spoken and, 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 it's, and somebody perishes, it's on me. Because I was given an opportunity to do something about it, and I didn't. In fact, my past is haunted with encounters of people that I knew the Lord said, talk to that person. Share the gospel with them, and I didn't. And now I have to live with the, the, the weight of that on my conscience. Now, I was a young believer, and I was scared, and I, was, I, could, I had all kinds of excuses. And I could sit here and give them to you. And the fact is, God will hold that, to my, he'll hold that to my account. Which causes me today to give pause to everything I say from a pulpit. Every time I teach the word of God, everything I say or write is with utmost accuracy. Because that blood will be held to my account. Now, if the Christian is faithful, to my second point, the Christian serves well as a watchman, then their soul is delivered from that responsibility. And this is where Ezekiel gets into it. He said, verses 19, God says, if you warn the wicked and he doesn't turn from his sin, look, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Look, if you warn the wicked and they laugh at you and they mock you and they reject you, it's not the, that you they're rejecting. It's the message. Okay? Don't take it personal. Just warn them. Let the rest of it be up to God. Because you've done your part. And if the wicked perish in their sin, and you have delivered the message, you have also delivered your soul. And then verse 21, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, praise the Lord. He shall surely live because he took warning, and you also have delivered your own soul. If we discharge our duty as soldiers of Christ, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners and the righteous, if we do that well, anyone who perishes in their rebellion will be responsible for themselves. God will not hold us accountable. And this is the modern situation that we're in right now. We live in a world who does not want to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't want to hear about the, the biblical standards for masculinity and femininity, for marriage, for gender. They, they don't want to hear about those things. Why? Because they love their sin. They love it so much that not only will they laugh at you while you tell it to them, but they'll mock God with a closed fist. They're in rebellion. But your job is not to save their soul. Your job is to 
to preach the message of the gospel of reconciliation. The message of peace. Because they're living in hostility. Christian, do that. Faithfully. Whatever capacity God has given to you, with whatever platform you have, with whatever power and strength you have in you left, preach the gospel. Let let the results be up to God. Because to him, the souls of mankind is a serious business. It should be for us too. We should, we should appeal to people, even when it's uncomfortable, y'all. Oh, I said it again. My wife cringes every time I say y'all. It's uncomfortable sometimes. I mean, I, I can imagine Ezekiel was probably uncomfortable. I mean, he's probably thinking... I got to get up tomorrow morning and I got to go into the temple and I got to tell these guys this. Are you serious? I'm sure he didn't sleep at night. I'm sure he had problems with, with, uh, with blood pressure or or all these other, I'm sure he had a physical hesitancy sometimes in his ministry. That didn't mean he just stepped to silence. God empowered him to make bold stands. He did the same for Jeremiah He did the same for Isaiah. He did the same for all these guys. And he'll do the same for us. In fact, he'll give us the words we need when we need them. As long as we're faithful to the cause. Amen, church? Let's be our brother's keepers. Watch out for one another in the body of Christ. Love one another to the glory of God. So that sin might not be counted among us. And then take that message to the world to your family, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to the strangers that you've never met before. Because God wants to save them. And we have the message of hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this word. Father, as we close this message and we bring it into the teaching from your word, I pray that, that what was said is glorifying to you and your character and your name. Father, that you were honored by the reading of your word and the assembling of your saints. Father, I just pray now that your word, as it goes forth, wherever it goes, accomplishes what you will. Father, that it does not return unto you void, but that it accomplishes exactly what it means to accomplish in this sanctuary, in our community, around the world. Father, I thank you for the ministry that you've given to us with one another first and foremost you've given to us the ministry of reconciliation in this wonderful body of believers father i love these people i know you love them father i thank you for the for the ministry you've given to each one of us but father i I thank you for the awesome responsibility the, the privilege of being able to take your gospel to those we've never even met locally regionally globally whatever the initiative calls for Father, we know that your word is life, that it is truth. Woe be it for us to keep silent. Father, thank you for this time in your word as we now move into the Lord's Supper and partaking in the Lord's Supper and the invitation. Father, I pray that your will is done and that you are glorified by all that we say and do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Before we before the uh, altar or the invitation rather is open and given, I want to read, I want to really just kind of guard the table this morning and kind of um, protect it, the integrity of it.
before we enter into the supper that we do what Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 27 of his book. In the institution of the Lord's Supper, as we're going to go partake in a second, part of the process was examination. And Paul said this to the believers, he said, Therefore, whoever eats this bread, who drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. As I mentioned just a second ago, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have confessed faith, you are free, welcome, to take this supper with us. I'd like to bless this meal before we partake in it, so if you'll bow your heads with me, I'd like to pray over it. Father, I thank you this morning that we can come together And that we can do so in remembrance of the work that you accomplished for us on the cross. Father, this supper reminds us this this morning of of that work. The atoning sacrifice that that you offered for the sins of your people. Father, I thank you for this work as it far surpasses anything that we could possibly imagine or understand in accordance to your grace and mercy. But Father, we're thankful that you've bestowed this mercy and grace upon us anyway. That you've given us the right standing before God, justified freely before you. And so, Father, as your brothers, as your children, my brothers and sisters, come into this sanctuary to receive this meal, Father, I pray that you bless the elements thereof and that you bless our time together in fellowship. In Jesus' name, and amen. said this to the Corinthian believers, said, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Paul continues by saying this. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Gentlemen, thank you all. Scripture is clear that as the brothers and sisters left, they sang songs, fellowshiped, worshiped God uh, for the remembrance of the things that we have just observed. Um, It's a holy thing to be sure. It's blessed to do and partake in an assembling of God's people. So I'm grateful that you were here this morning to be part of it and I pray that the Lord uh, blessed you and in some way this morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him.